Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. This is the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In this special series, we present sessions from a recent symposium to mark the 50th anniversary of the Australian newspaper. These sessions were recorded with assistance from Sky APAC and Macquarie University. Thanks for the support. It's my honour and pleasure to introduce our opening keynote, Paul Kelly. Uh, Paul is universally recognised as one of the great figures of post-war Australian journalism and one of the most influential. His contribution to the writing of contemporary political history through a number of books, from The Unmaking of Goff in 1976 to The March of the Patriots 2009, is without peer. As Editor-in-Chief of The Australian from 1991 to 1996, and editor-at-large since 2004. Paul has proved to be one of the country's most significant newspaper editors as well. Paul has titled his reflections, The Paper and the Nation, 50 Years of the Australian. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Kelly. Well, thank you much, uh, Murray, for that uh, kind introduction. It's uh, great to be here. I want to thank Macquarie University, notably Bridget Griffin Foley and Murray, for organising this symposium and for inviting representatives of the Australian to attend. The paper does see the 50th anniversary as a landmark, and our approach, as you can see, has been to offer a sustained summary over 50 days of the highlights of this history and one of the key people uh, involved in writing that is Mark Day uh, who uh, is in the audience today. Uh, I want to acknowledge the fact that we've got a number of legendary figures from uh, News Limited and The Australian are with us today. Uh, my own comments uh, over the next half hour are going to be somewhat selective obviously uh, Covering 50 years of history, one's got to be highly selective, and I'll leave some time for questions at the end of that. Uh, the idea of a national newspaper was a Murdoch family dream given life by Rupert Murdoch. When I interviewed Rupert in Los Angeles two months ago, he's told me that his father, the journalist and proprietor Keith Murdoch, had long cultivated this ambition. Calling it a family aspiration, Rupert said that when he was a teenager, he could recall his father talking about the idea of a national paper. Uh, the Murdochs, of course, were a newspaper family. Rupert had the industry in his blood and in his head. I suspect his decision to launch the Australian came from the seething chemistry of his impatience, ambition, uh, heritage and frustration. Uh, Rupert Murdoch was aged 33 at the time, a young man determined to change things and leave his mark. But he didn't just launch the Australian in July 1964. He has supported it for the next 50 years through thick and thin, good times and bad times, and that's probably equally important. In a media empire that reached a global scale nobody could have foreseen half a century ago, Rupert Murdoch has always displayed a deep and abiding commitment to the paper. From the interview I did with him, it's clear that his vision for Australia as a country and his concept of the Australian 
as a newspaper are tied together. And of course, that is the case for many of us who've worked on the paper for such a long period of time. The daily business of the paper is to focus on breaking stories around the nation and addressing on the op-ed page the fundamental issues that face the nation. So it's hardly surprising that so much of our working life has involved an integration of, of our views about Australia on the one hand, tied in on the other hand to the development of the Australian as the national paper. Its survival and its success over 50 years rests upon a remarkable trifecta. Rupert Murdoch's personal commitment, the paper's location in a highly financially successful global media company, and thirdly, while it may have taken some time to develop, the emergence of a strong, distinct and sustained brand for the Australian. The Australian has a powerful sense of its own identity, where it sits into the marketplace and what it stands for. This is embedded in the editorial culture of the paper and backed by the corporate culture. The Australian is unique because it's national, it aspires to quality, and it is a paper that manifestly seeks to change and improve the country. The Australian was born in Rupert Murdoch's deep frustration with the Menzian age of the early 1960s. He believed that the early 1960s ruling class was hopelessly obsolete. Australia in 1964 was a nation of racial discrimination, a gross gender inequality, censorship and introspection, though it was ready to change when given the chance. The timing of the launch, 1964, in retrospect, looks just about perfect. The paper, from the start, was serious, intellectual and irreverent. Now, I've got the first edition here, uh, and I'm going to hold up uh, the centre page spread. That is, the editorial page, uh, the cartoon... Uh, the main features, and then uh, the opposite page, what we'd call uh, today the op-ed page, which is more like a feature page. And uh, I can appreciate that everyone can't see this, so I'll just run through uh, what the articles are. We've got a Bruce Petty cartoon at the top of the editorial page next to the first editorial, and the theme of the first editorial is facing the challenge of adulthood. And the philosophy in the first editorial summarises the philosophy of the paper, and that is that the aim was for an Australia which was more confident, uh, a, a, uh, a country instilled with a greater sense of self-esteem and uh, more successful, a more ambitious country. Now, the pieces on this page deal with uh, Barry Goldwater, uh, emerging from the Republican Convention of 1964 uh, by uh, Chalmers M. Roberts, a piece by Brian Johns on the External Affairs Department. Um, on the right-hand page, 
uh, we've got the uh, Australian's art critic, Elwyn Lynn, writing about William Dobell. Uh, beneath that, uh, we have a book review um, on Britain and India, and then a piece on the education system uh, in Victoria. Now, the point about uh, these pieces is they are quite eclectic, but they indicate a paper that is intellectual, that's serious, and that wants to probe new boundaries. And as I said, uh, that's what the Australian was. It also, uh, I think, had uh, a sense of irreverence about it, particularly coming from the, from the cartoons. Uh, it was, in its time, a radical paper and generated a sense of excitement. It offered opportunities for journalists. It featured bylines. A lot of papers in those days didn't feature bylines. And so there was a sense of excitement in the journalistic community about a new product and opportunities in this new product. I think it is fair to say that the paper changed the industry, it changed the way we thought about newspapers. Um, I know very well some of the great uh, figures from the Fairfax Company uh, over the last 50 years, and they are in no doubt that the launch of the Australian was something that had a profound impact on the Fairfax Company and the way the Fairfax Company uh, approached newspapers. Australia in those days was a very provincial society, a very state-based society. It's easy to forget uh, now, at this stage in 2014, just what the country was like uh, 50 years ago. But uh, the sense of the sense of uh, states and state capitals dominating was very strong. Um, the West, uh, North Queensland, could have well been other countries. Uh, the sense of national cohesion, uh, which we see today, simply didn't exist back in those times. And in that sense, of course, the Australian was very, very important in starting a new conversation the paper began a new conversation about national issues. And right from the start, it was interested in covering technology, aviation, rural and farm issues, mining, higher education, manufacturing, the economy, and national politics. And this was a fairly comprehensive way to set a new national agenda. Another feature to make about the paper was its interest in foreign news. Right from the start, the Australian was an outward-looking paper, very interested in Australia's relations with the outside world, very interested in foreign policy, trade, uh, external economic uh, relations. Um, so I think that, I think in this sense, um, uh, the paper uh, changed uh, the industry not just in terms of appearance, but also in terms of content. But as far as I'm concerned, looking back, I think the impulse that really seeded the Australian was the commitment to change the country. Uh, this remains, I believe, at the beating heart of the paper. I think it always has been. It's the key to the paper's character and the passions that the, that the paper has always aroused. Very few people 
feel neutral about the Australian. It's not the sort of paper that inspires neutrality. It's the sort of paper that inspires very firm views, either for the paper or against the paper, or for the paper on some issues and against the paper on other issues. So let me offer uh, a brief overview with reference to politics of how the Australian has interpreted uh, its mission over half a century. Uh, I was at university uh, from 1965 to 1968. I started reading The Australian in early 1966 and uh, I've never stopped. And I remember the paper very, very clearly uh, in those years of 1966 and 1967 um, when I was a student. And the paper was riding a wave of change. Australia in those days was a very conservative country, but the momentum for change was coming as a new generation of people emerged from school, went to university, values began to change in terms of both uh, personal morality and social norms. The paper was uh, a very assertive paper, a confident paper from the start that had a sense of mission. And a lot of that was tied in to this sense of change that I've talked about. Uh, Donald Horne had written The Lucky Country about the same time The Australian was launched. A little bit later, we had the ABC launching the current affairs program, This Day Tonight, now the 7.30 report. And above all, we had the Vietnam War. We had the Vietnam War and the paper took a very, very strong stand right from the start against the Vietnam War. It wrote a lot about the war in a highly intelligent way, highly uh, competent reporting of the war, but uh, the paper's opposition to the Vietnam War in the late 1960s was a defining moment. And in this sense, of course, in political terms, what the paper did was the paper eventually uh, threw its support behind Gough Whitlam. It supported Gough Whitlam at the 1972 election. Uh, the view of the paper uh, was that the uh, Mendian age had, had uh, surrendered to the prime ministerships of Holt, Gorton and McMahon, which were uh, flawed efforts to tap the mood of change in the country. Uh, so the paper was very committed to uh, the Whitlam transition. Whitlam, of course, only won that 1972 election by a very narrow margin. Uh, not, the, not that the Australian uh, made any difference to the winning margin, but I think in symbolic terms, the role of the Australian as a quality broadsheet supporting Whitlam in 1972 was very, very important. What happened then was we had a very turbulent period of government uh, a very turbulent period in the country. And I think the real turning point came in 1974. I was political correspondent of the paper in 1974, and I remember it well. And essentially the Whitlam government got sunk into internal divisions and convulsions, of the loans affair, uh, we had global stagflation, and we had great difficulty with, with the Whitlam government responding to this in economic terms. We had rising unemployment and rising inflation in Australia. 
Uh, we saw briefly the rise and fall of Jim Cairns. We saw the influence of Rex Connor when it came to the loans affair. And we saw Whitlam really struggling in government to hold his team together and to sort out what to do. Um, I can remember by uh, July, August, September uh, 1974, there was a profound sense that the Whitlam government had failed to manage the economy effectively. Certainly, uh, the business and financial community was deeply disenchanted. This led to 1975, the most turbulent year in the history of the paper. Um, uh, the paper uh, gave strong support to Malcolm Fraser against Gough Whitlam, in particular uh, over the blocking of supply and the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Um, this was uh, a very contentious period uh, on the paper internally, uh, and the paper paid a price for uh, the change uh, uh, of its, in, its, uh, in its political alignment over that period of 18 months. I discussed this uh, with Rupert when I interviewed him in Los Angeles a couple of months ago. Uh, the circulation fell substantially, and he talked about that and talked about the harm that was done to the paper. And, of course, we did have a strike by uh, the journalists in the 1975 election campaign. What essentially happened, however, is that the country changed. The country changed, and there was a recognition that there had to be a new and tougher approach to public policy. And as the country changed... The paper changed with it. And I think at this point in time, the identity of the paper, essentially as a paper of the centre-right, became pretty much established. And the values, the values which the Australian stands for today, were given clearer and firmer definition. This was a tough world in the 1970s. We had an intensified struggle in terms of the Cold War, we had very intense global economic problems. The priority of the paper was that we had to develop a successful competitive economy that could, that, that could compete in the global marketplace. There was a very substantial reaction against Whitlam. Uh, there was a feeling on the paper that we had to commit to smaller government, lower taxation, and a more competitive economic structure. And essentially, this was the movement of the country. This was the, this was the direction the Fraser government began to move in. And of course, eventually, it was the direction that the Labor Party moved in. The paper supported the Fraser government for quite some time. I personally think for far too long. Over time, however, the paper did emerge as a critic of Malcolm Fraser and in some respects quite a strong critic. It felt that Fraser had been given a great opportunity. He'd won these two landslide elections in 1975 and 1977, but he hadn't used these opportunities that he'd squandered them. The paper was an intellectual paper in its support for a more free market agenda and populist in its appeal for a tax revolution. It was also deeply suspicious of muscle flexing on the part of the industrial movement. What happened in the 1980s, particularly with the arrival of Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom and Ronald Reagan as United States President, was that the paper was influenced 
in turn by these global events and the more assertive uh, support for free market policies in certain respects coming from both Britain and the United States. The paper in the 1980s was a, both a periodic supporter and critic of the Hawke-Keating period. It agitated for economic change and economic reform. It backed much of the Hawke-Keating agenda. It was, highly, it was highly suspicious of the accord with the union movement and it wanted Hawke and Keating to go further. In 1996, the paper's hopes were invested in John Howard. And I think it probably gave uh, the Howard government, uh, over time, more sustained support than it gave to any other uh, government. Though, of course, it had memorable critiques of Howard. Witness the Australian Wheat Board scandal, the Mohammed Hanif affair, and as time advanced under um, the uh, leadership of the paper, uh, in particular the leadership of Chris Mitchell, the paper did become much more critical of the Howard government. The Australian had been long dissatisfied since 1996 with the leadership and direction of the Labor Party. Uh, we felt that Labor in opposition after the defeat of Keating over a long period of time had failed to uh, reform and failed to really address uh, the defects that had been exposed during its period of government. However, the paper became enthusiastic eventually with the Labor Party in 2006 with the election of Kevin Rudd as Labor leader. And in today's paper, there's a fascinating insight into contemporary history in um, today's 50th anniversary pages where Chris Mitchell, the editor-in-chief of the paper, uh, talking about the 2007 election, says, not everyone was convinced Kevin Rudd was the answer. Quote, we talked the proprietor around, explains Mitchell, of his effort to convince Rupert Murdoch to support Rudd. Well, there's a fascinating story there, but the paper in 2007 uh, did support Kevin Rudd and abandoned its uh, previous support for John Howard. And uh, we believed, and the paper hoped, that Rudd would be a fine Prime Minister, and we supported him strongly in his early months in the Lodge. It is, however, undoubtedly true to say that The Australian was the first paper, and for a while it was the only paper, to recognise that there were very serious problems, very serious policy and administrative problems with the Rudd government, that this, in fact, was a dysfunctional government. And we ran a major piece arguing this in the middle of 2008 which became famous or infamous. Over time, it's fair to say the Australian became critical and then more critical of the policies, priorities and dysfunction of Labor in office during the Rudd and Gillard period. And at the 2013 election, we offered strong support to Tony Abbott and a change of government. What do we conclude from this history? Well, I think there are a couple of points to conclude from this history. 
The first point, and I can't emphasise this strongly enough, is the Australian is not the paper of any party. It never has been, it never will be. The Australian has its own vision for the country, its own political, economic and social vision, and it evaluates both sides of politics according to our vision. I've had to explain this on countless occasions to a range of senior political figures. Uh, we, are not, we are not committed as such to either the Labor or Liberal Party, and that is the lesson of our history. The second point to make is that we judge issues on merit item by item, and that is that the attitude we have on welfare may not correspond in broad political terms to the attitude we have towards China, or the uh, paper's policies on industrial relations uh, don't give you any guide to what the paper's policies on Indigenous affairs might be. Uh, this is a paper which assesses and judges issues on merit, and in that sense, I'm, uh, uh, I'd like to uh, go back to the quote from Gough Whitlam that the Australian is unpredictable. I think that's still the case. I'd like to make some comments uh, quickly on some structural and cultural issues about the paper. The Australian has always searched for talent. Rupert Murdoch did right from the start. Look at two of the early editors, Max Newton and Adrian Deemer, completely different people, yet brilliant editors able to make uh, a very substantial contribution to the paper. Uh, the paper has always had an abiding commitment to journalistic talent, nurturing talent internally and going out into the marketplace to hire more talent. I can't run through all the talent on the paper today. I would just highlight the investigations done by Hedley Thomas, the writing of Nicholas Rothwell, and the flamboyant intelligence of Greg Sheridan. The Australian in the first part of its history had a reputation for turbulence, a well-earned reputation for turbulence, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. Uh, newspapers, particularly new newspapers, find their identity through change and adaptation, and there's no doubt at all that uh, there was very, consider very considerable turbulence on the paper in the first couple of decades. But the interesting thing is, you look at the Australian over the last 30 years, it's had only four editors-in-chief in 30 years. Les Hollings, myself, David Armstrong and Chris Mitchell. And in relation to myself, David Armstrong and Chris Mitchell, that's three editors-in-chief in about the last 22 years. This is an extraordinary degree of stability and continuity. And I think it's reinforced by the fact that David, myself and Chris uh, have had a shared background. We've known, one another, we've known one another for a very long period of time. I met David Armstrong on my first day as a journalist and I've been dealing very closely with Chris Mitchell since the late 1980s when he took over the backbench of The Australian. So I think this sense of, this sense of continuity has been uh, very, very important in really developing uh, a lot of, of the values of the paper. 
So what are the values of the paper and what's it stand for? Well, I think they're, they're fairly clear. Uh, the paper stands for a competitive, market-based, successful economy. We think there's no future for the country in having a heavily government-controlled and regulated economy. Uh, I argued this in my book, The End of Certainty, which came out in the early 1990s, and it's certainly been a deep commitment of the paper. Whenever we see a revival of regulation or protectionism, we are on guard about this. We are concerned about the re-regulation of the industrial system in recent years. We believe passionately that a successful economy and a healthy society go together. They reinforce one another. We are very committed to Australia having an outgoing commitment to engaging with the world, particularly Asia, particularly China, a really long-standing theme of the paper, as is our deep commitment to the alliance with the United States. One of the profound passions of the paper is that it believes in a big Australia. We, have, we are open about it. We've campaigned for it. We believe in a strong, legally-based immigration program. This is one of the really powerful themes of the paper over many decades. On Indigenous issues in recent decades, the paper, I think, has taken some uh, landmark positions. We've been uh, very committed to moving away from what we feel was the commitment to progressive and unsuccessful policies in Indigenous affairs. We've worked with a number of Indigenous leaders, in particular Noel Pearson, to try to change the agenda and put a much greater emphasis on individual responsibility. When it comes to education, we've been committed not just to higher education, but at the school level, looking very much at standards, uh, how we improve the quality of school education. And finally, I should uh, mention our commitment to Australian history, and in particular, our commitment to war commemoration. I think one of the features of the paper for a long period of time is honouring those Australians and their families, those Australians who've served abroad in various conflicts over the years doing specials and providing lists of the diggers uh, who fought uh, in those wars. I think that um, when one uh, looks back, we look back not just with a sense of satisfaction, we look back with a sense of humility. Uh, one of the points Rupert made to me when I spoke to him in Los Angeles was he said, well, we've made mistakes. Uh, we've tried to recognise the mistakes we've made and do something about it. Uh, finally, I might just say something about the internal operations of the paper. Uh, the responsibility of the editor-in-chief of the paper, of course, is to deal with Rupert as chairman and deal with the chief executive in Australia. And the culture, the culture of the company is that they expect editors-in-chief to operate as strong editors. Editors-in-chief are given a lot of scope to interpret the paper's mission. And certainly if you look at the history of the paper, each editor-in-chief has done that. Each editor-in-chief has put his own stamp, his own brand on interpreting the paper's mission. 
that's what's expected by the company. It's what's expected by Rupert Murdoch. And in that sense, of course, uh, the, the editors and the style of the paper uh, tends to be uh, aggressive disclosure, um, a balanced and fair reporting and probing of the intellectual issues that uh, concern uh, the paper. Uh, speaking for myself as editor-in-chief, uh, when I became editor-in-chief with the chief executive, Ken Cowley, uh, we went to Los Angeles and had a couple of days with Rupert, and the purpose of that meeting was to discuss frankly with Rupert what the paper would stand for under my period as editor-in-chief. We had several hours of discussion. We went through virtually the entire waterfront, the entire public policy spectrum of issues. It was a very valuable discussion with me, a very good exchange uh, with Rupert Murdoch, and essentially as editor-in-chief of the paper for five years, I relied on the framework that Rupert and I had agreed on at that first meeting. And what that meant, of course, is that as editor-in-chief, you can be uh, a very strong and, I think, a very forceful editor. And some of the things I did uh, as editor-in-chief, and I was editor-in-chief when Paul Keating was Prime Minister, we campaigned for the Republic, a campaign that David Armstrong as editor-in-chief followed up very aggressively. We supported uh, Eddie Mabo as the Australian of the Year and the Mabo, uh, the Mabo judgment. And in particular, we gave very strong support to Keating's initiatives with Indonesia and in a broader sense, his engagement with Asia. I think the way we treated the Keating Prime Ministership was we gave strong support for Keating on a range of issues and strong criticism of Keating uh, on another bank of issues. I'm going to close off my remarks there. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.